Welcome. Hi. I'm Mickey, and this is Wikipedia, where I sit down and chat to doctors, professors, athletes, practitioners, and experts in their fields related to health, nutrition, fitness, and well-being. And I'm delighted that you're here. Morena, everyone. Hope you're having a great week. And uh, it's interesting. So this Wednesday which is when this is being published. It would have been a year when New Zealand went down into lockdown, when COVID really kind of hit home. So gosh, what a year it's been. I've been really thinking about that lately. Anyway, let's hope it is on the up and up. Uh, what is on the up, of course, is this week's potty guest, Dr. Cliff Harvey, who um, joins us again. He's becoming a regular and wouldn't have it any other way. Such a wealth of information. So today on the podcast, Cliff and I talk all about uh, fasting, about supplements, and also Cliff's research in and around mushrooms, in addition to just having a good old yarn about other particular nutrition topics that we generally tangent off on. So you can tune in and hear all about all of that stuff here and just to remind you Cliff Harvey PhD Dr Cliff Harvey he is New Zealand's expert on the effects of a ketogenic diet in a healthy population but of course he is so much more than that over the last 20 years he has worked with Olympic professional Commonwealth and other high-performing athletes in addition to the general population who just really want to optimize their health. He has also founded or co-founded many successful businesses in the health, fitness and wellness space, including the Nutrition Store Online, which you see I post about on a regular basis because they're a bit of my go-to when I am looking for UCAN or Mushroom or MCT-based products and also the Holistic Performance Institute, which is New Zealand's leading certification and diploma for health, nutrition, health coaching, and performance that has many of the world experts teaching on the course. So students are learning from the best. And what I will say as well is that we have recently launched my course on there, the first module on female nutrition. So it's all about nutrition through the life stages for females. So if you haven't already checked that out, check out the links in the podcast notes for today. And without further delay, I hope that you enjoy my conversation with Dr. Cliff Harvey. And we're on, Cliff Dog. How are you? Happy 2021. Good, Dr. Dr. Mickey Willardin, how are you doing? <laughs> I'm good, thank you. I always stumble over that, don't I? Because I, when we're chatting, I just call you Doc, and then I call you Dr. Mickey Willardin, and I always stumble over it. Do you know what it is? It's the K's and the L's. It's There's just too many kind of like points in my name with which people can stumble over. Usually I get an extra N in there, Willardin, Makala, if it's used, similar thing, Makala Willardin, like it's just, it's a bit... I should have been called Jane. Basically, Jane Smith would have been way easier. You could call yourself Mick Will. <laughs> Mick Will. You're right. That would make me quite like approachable for things as well. Oh, Mick Will. Awesome. <laughs> we'll I like it. it. I like it. <laughs> anyway, you're looking very refreshed and relaxed coming into 2021. Probably just in time, of course, for this inevitable lockdown that people keep talking about happening. I'm not sure it'll happen. Yeah. Like, why, why would it? There's no community transmission, right? I know, right? So funny. Like, people around here, so at the minute I'm in um, the hallowed halls of Unitech Academic um, Institution and people are talking about, you know, just in case you lock down, take your computers home. And I'm, I'm so like, lockdown? What? Why? Mm. Unless there's something that people know that we don't. Well, I have heard us being referred to as sheeple because, in fact... There is a lot that we don't know, apparently, in and around, you know. Well, there's a lot that we don't know. And yeah. then there's the stuff that we don't know that is untrue. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So there's the, the the clear and known unknown. And then yes. there's the, the wacky uh, fringe unknown. Yeah. And the, no, I did not spend 200 hours researching that. So actually, no, I don't know, in fact, because I don't have 200 hours. Oh, and there's 
Daisy coming in to say hello. Daisy Simply. for those people who who are wondering is uh, Cliff's dog. That's right, Mary Christie Duke. Now, Cliff, again, got a bunch of questions. Still making our way through this list. Um, really good questions as well. And looking through them, you're absolutely the person I think is most qualified that I know to answer some of these and undoubtedly we'll have a good conversation around them. So shall I just crack on into it? Crack into it, Doc. Awesome. Alrighty. So first one comes from Tracy. So she says, I'm feeling a bit overwhelmed at the sheer number of good supplements and powders we can take to optimize our health and training. E.g., you know, protein powder, collagen powder, magnesium, iron, <laughs> weird mushroom stuff, etc. Of course, in addition to good food choices, do you have any suggestions or comments on how best to choose or prioritize which ones to take and how best to integrate them into your day? And then Tracy gives her example where she runs three days a week. She does martial arts three times a week and she feels there must be different things which could help her improve and recover from these activities. It's a great question, Cliff. It is a good question. And it's something, you know, I work with a lot with, um, with, with my students at Holistic Performance Institute. One of the big things, obviously, we're, we're training practitioners there. Mm. And they're often very confused as well about what to prescribe. It's the same sort of question, but it's coming from the different angle. You know, what should I prescribe? Because there's a whole bunch of things that could work. Yeah. And I think we, we should always go back to a hierarchy approach. So it's kind of like, you know, you think about Maslow's hierarchy of needs. It's a similar mm -hmm. kind of thing. Um, I'll often talk about hierarchies of sort of supplementation mm -hmm. or hierarchies of exercise. And what we're really looking at is what's what's most effective, um, what what's missing, what's most effective, and what's going to give the biggest bang for buck. And when yeah. we're talking bang for buck, it's well, literally bang for buck. Yeah. Um, but also, you know, time, um, ease, things like that. So it's looking at all of those aspects. And so... I think we always need to start by saying, well, you know, food comes first and that's always going to be critically important. We want to make sure we're trying to, where possible, eat a nutrient-dense diet that is replete in particularly protein and essential fats. Yeah. Outside of that, I think a lot of our calories in, calories out, energy balance stuff will kind of figure itself out for a lot of people because if we're eating nutrient-dense diet, it's typically relatively high in bulk. Um, if we're replete in protein and essential fats, we tend to have pretty good satiety. The rest kind of balances out unless we unless it's not and then you can mm. go a little bit further into quantification so that's fine but then we need to say well okay after we've paid some attention to that what's functionally going to happen and for a lot of people they're still not going to maybe get enough of some of the essential vitamins and minerals you well, know, particularly we, in new zealand right so we've got some of our soils are deplete of certain minerals so therefore it's that you know there's some quite well-known deficiencies in New Zealand for example where we would struggle to meet our requirements just based on diet alone absolutely and you know it's, it's relatively cool well there, and there's also other things there's you know there's conversion mm. factors there are mm. certain nutrients that are relatively low in the diet anyway um, yeah. that that's exacerbated the more processed food we eat because those mm. are typically less nutrient dense and so there are you know key things that are, are fairly commonly insufficient in the diet, vitamin A, vitamin D, obviously that's not a dietary thing per se, but that's obviously a nutrient that we, we often lack as well. Zinc um, in particular is often low, but even some of the B vitamins, B1, B3, you know, can be relatively low in, in a lot of people's diets. Yeah. Um, iron for a lot of women, maybe not so much of an issue for guys. And so, you know, we start to get to a point where there, there's quite a lot of things that can potentially be lacking mm. um, and that probably need to have the gaps filled to some degree so that's why i always start with a multi-nutrient yeah now, so, some people say that's not the best thing to do because it's kind of a shotgun approach and some of them compete with one another my reply to that is done is better than perfect yeah and if we're trying to figure out number one exactly what we need we're typically not going to be able to do that very well mm -hmm. um secondly if we're trying to optimize absorption uptake transport of all these various micronutrients it's going to be very difficult to do uh, and typically that leads to poor adherence so generally people then don't adhere to their supplementation protocols mm. and when we look at food it's mixed right yeah it's not like you don't get 
calcium, magnesium, zinc, whatever, in some of the same foods. You know, it's not that we don't get some competing nutrients. That's actually okay. We tend to see on balance, and the research shows this more and more as time goes on, often the lines we draw around um, competition are less important than just getting in enough of the nutrients. Yeah. And so that's why I think first up, we start with a multi-nutrient. Um, then I would start to look at other things that might help to fill in the gaps of diet. And for me, those would be uh, just a, a basic protein powder. And I don't really care what you take. Yeah. It could be whey, it could be casein, it could be pea, um, you know, so long as it works for you. Uh, and I also think that essential fatty acids, particularly the omega-3 fatty acids, and most particularly fish oil, are yeah. probably the best way to, to make up for that. Now, all, all the other things are can also be used, but I would always start with those before I start to look at more, say, esoteric supplementation. And then once I've moved past you know, the basics of protein, fish oil, uh, multi, I would then be looking more specifically at what the, the, the client wants to achieve and um, modifying their supplementation based on that. Yeah, nice. And I, um, you know, just to add a few things in, and I'm in agreement with everything that you've said. <clears throat> I think that that whole kind of competition thing is really interesting because, you know, there's, if we think about zinc and iron and calcium, they all kind of compete for the same receptor, but actually the amounts required in order to kind of kick one or the other out is actually like quite a lot. So, you know, whilst I might say to someone, actually, you know what, take your iron in the morning, take your zinc in the evening, there are actually, it's not just a receptor kind of like competition issue. There are other kind of things at play there. And, and we'll get to that with another question probably, but I agree with you that actually getting it in is better than being overly worried about whether or not they're all together in the same mix. In terms of what people actually need, I, it's, it's an imperfect measure, but I would always look to kind of get baseline nutrient markers as well. And what I say by it's an imperfect measure is that they only really tell us so much. So, you know, a good example of this is your B12. So you may present with a high B12 in your blood, like a serum B12, but it doesn't necessarily mean that you are able to utilize that the way that you need to in your body. And so there are other tests that can determine it. Um, however, a low B12 would indicate to me that there is an additional requirement for that over and above what you might be getting from your diet. So, you know, it can be somewhat limited. Plasma zinc, sort of same thing, I, th I believe. Rachel Arthur, who did her doctoral studies looking at zinc requirements, suggests that a level of 15, if you're getting it on a blood test, um, would indicate sufficiency. Other people think that, you know, if you if you take a supplement, uh, sorry, if you, um, yeah, take a zinc dropper and you can't taste it, then that in itself is indicative of requiring extra zinc. So, when you're thinking about what people need to consider in terms of additional supplementation, then I like to kind of see if I can glean anything from blood tests as well. Yeah. I think um, just on the zinc question, I, I know Rachel re relatively well. We've discussed mm. this and I, I did a review of um, zinc taste testing. Mm. And I, I don't think zinc taste testing is a valid measure mm. for zinc. And the reason I say that is I think there's potential danger there. And that's because uh, in at least one, it was possibly two, but it was at least one study that was performed uh women with the sort of worst uh zinc acuity and so they they were therefore indicated as needing the most zinc and being the most efficient actually had the highest levels mm. and so there, there was potential there that they were going to over supplement with with zinc and so i think it's very imprecise and as far as i know having looked at that research and um, speaking with rachel about it the, the zinc you know, blood testing. So plasma zinc is still the, the best we have. It's, it's, it's not, you know, it's not precise, mm. um, but it's the best proxy we have for tissue levels as mm. far as I know. But you make a good point because, you know, I'm, I've done a lot of work with autoimmune conditions and I continue to do that. And, you know, you, you would have seen the case study I published last year. There's probably some more cases I'll publish this year about various autoimmune conditions. And one of the things that we see relatively consistently or beginning to see quite consistently is that there are, polymorphisms that might be specific to certain autoimmune conditions or maybe they're actually broader than that maybe we see similar types of polymorphisms across autoimmune conditions mm. that for example affect um, the vitamin d receptor and what what that means is that functionally 
a, a normal range for vitamin D may not actually be normal or, or appropriate for that person because yeah. sure their, their blood levels are fine but that doesn't mean it's actually going to be able to be used on a cellular level. Yeah. And so we do need to look at condition specific ranges and we need to look at um, age specific ranges. You know, the, the reference ranges are probably, I don't think appropriate for kids because um, that there are higher functional ranges that have been suggested in the research for optimal function. Mm. So there's a lot going on there. You know, it also plays into conversion rates. Uh, you know, some people will be completely fine just having beta carotene mm. as their vitamin A precursor, whereas some people will not, you know, and yep. that changes based on the individual, it changes based on genetic proclivity, and it changes based on BMI as well, because there's a whole milieu of biochemical effects from increased adiposity that also affects um, nutrient absorption, transport and utilization. Yeah, absolutely. And just for people who are unfamiliar, beta carotene is the precursor for vitamin A. And so you may hear things like, you know, carrots contain vitamin A and your, you know, your colorful veggies have vitamin A. And in fact, they contain the beta carotene, which we need to convert to vitamin A, which is much more potent and found in, or, or much more retinol is found in, you know, milk products in liver in more kind of animal protein rather than your vegetables per se. Well, you'll, you'll um, be interested in this, Mick. I'll send you the article when it's completed, but I'm just doing a big review on the effects of saturated fat on, you know, cardiovascular outcomes. Oh, yeah. It's been done to death, but the thing is we still had the same debates springing up, right? We still have the same debates around whether saturated fats are actually healthful or harmful. Um, we have a lot of the same debates springing up around the substitution analysis. And uh, one thing that I won't go into the in-depth what I've found there, but one thing that's super interesting is that it, it seems clearer and clearer to me that um, most of the substitution studies, what they're really looking at is an insufficiency of essential fatty acids, in particular omega-3 fats. That's yeah, really the thing. So it's not it's not about saturated fat. It's that people aren't getting enough omega-3s. Mm. And we, when we consider that the conversion rates for baseline omega-3s, alpha-linolenic acid into DHA and EPA, very massively like yeah. a huge difference between individuals some people practically don't convert much at all mm -hmm. now that they're alive so that by proxy tells us they're converting enough to live mm. <laughs> but that's not a good measure for anything really just being alive yeah. is not a good measure for anything we want to really yeah. look at what's optimizing function and yeah. so it's not surprising that when uh sometimes people reduce saturated fat and replace that with polyunsaturates they get better out outcomes yeah, um, but obviously they don't get those same effects or those uh, those benefits when they're substituting that for anything else. Yeah, yeah. Monounsaturated fats, carbohydrate, whatever. So that tells us, you know, Occam's razor tells us that it's not the saturated fat; it's the um, omega threes or yeah. the polyunsaturates, I should say, but probably the omega threes. Yeah. Um, so I didn't want to get too tangential on that. It's just another example whereby different people are going to need different amounts of omega threes. Yeah. Different people are going to have to also look at maybe different options as well, because if someone thrives on a vegan diet, I'm going to say, well, they're, they're probably a good converter. Yeah. And that's, that's based on, you know, ethnogenetics over thousands of years. Yeah. But if people are, are very poor converters, they wouldn't do well on an unsupplemented vegan diet, just as, you know, an example. Yeah, no, that's a great example. And in fact, I had a conversation with Dr. Stuart Gray in um, the University of Glasgow last week, all around omega-3 fatty acids and muscle function and muscle health. And um, spoiler alert, we did talk about a study whereby they looked at healthy older adults who weren't able to exercise omega-3 helped stimulate muscle protein synthesis in the absence of exercise, which is the most potent stimulator of, of kind of muscle building, muscle generation. So, you know, there is omega-3s are so much more than just um, around reducing inflammation or <laughs> cardiovascular disease, how they just must perform so many different roles in the body. Um, and it's interesting that I suppose the more that people kind of delve into this area, the more we see their benefit, if you like, because it, there's such a known benefit with omega-3s in cardiovascular disease risk and reducing inflammation that kind of does make sense to me, actually, that if you delve into that saturated fat and what people are eating, what people aren't eating, that there may be some kind of relationship there. That's interesting, Cliff. 
Absolutely, no doubt. Yeah, yeah. mega threes. You know, much broader than people give them credit for. You know, really, really important for um, helping to prevent dysbiosis and you know for, for gut health and things like mm. that as well. Mm. Yeah. Well, I'll be looking forward to that uh, review when you knock it up and send it through, Cliff. It's pretty much done. I might send it through to you, and you can give me some some feedback before Do I publish it. it. I love that stuff. Um, now, Tracy also, you know, she does mention things like weird mushroom stuff. And I feel like what she's really asking about there is outside of these essential micronutrients, which we might have recommended kind of dietary requirements for, you've got this other area of supplementation, which is like one part kind of like an absolute minefield, but another part holds so much promise in terms of optimizing health, performance, longevity, you know, but there are thousands of products. There is so much that people can spend their money on. Like, is it worth, where and where does that sit in that kind of hierarchy of needs for you, Cliff? So someone like Tracy, who might have a great diet, she's an athlete, you know, should she also be looking at this kind of next layer of supplementation? Well, I wouldn't say should, but definitely can, you know. Yeah. I think that once the bases are covered and there's a good habit of, of supplementation because you know a habit of taking your supplements regularly and getting benefit from them is something that you build just like diet or, or exercise mm. but the way i look at the the next sort of level of supplements is it, it's it's got to be outcome based there's no point taking a supplement that is very specific in its outcomes or that has particular benefits if you don't want those benefits mm. I guess I have to walk that back a little bit though, because the, the mush, you know, mushrooms tend to have very broad benefits as well. So they could be considered nutrient dense foods that we're kind of adding in there or food like supplements that are, are mm. very broad in their actions too. But again, I, I think one of the key things is that people don't feel they have to do things. They get into a good habit of, of covering off the bases and then play around with it. Yeah. It's kind of like gambling, right? You, you don't gamble more than you can afford to spend yeah you've got yeah. to be you've got to afford to lose it in order to to gamble it and it's yeah. the same kind of thing you, you cover off your bases they're within your budget and then if you've got a little bit extra in your supplement budget then sure have some fun yeah um, but i would prioritize the things that are going to be most important for you so if you have an injury or you're prone to arthritis or, or pain maybe go for collagen before you look at other things mm. Um, mm. you know if you're looking at potential um, improvements in cognition brain health then i'd say well lion's mane's a, a pretty cool mushroom yeah plus it has yeah, a whole yeah. bunch of other benefits um if you're looking more for general immune support and things like that then maybe mushrooms like reishi or chaga fit the bill for that or turkey tail or shiitake um you know so there's there's a whole range of things that can be used there's a, a lot of supplements out there that have evidence backing them mm. um, but what we're really looking at is the the strength of the evidence the the breadth of the benefits it's going to give us and just figuring out what works what works well so i mean every day i take fish oil protein and creatine mm. um, awesome. I, I also occasionally take um oh and a multi obviously mm. so i take a multi protein fish oil creatine every day yeah and then when i feel like it i'll take uh, mushrooms just because i'm into them i think they're cool uh and i i do get benefit from them. So I get a brain boost. I'll take some lion's mane. Um, I don't really take a lot else, to be honest. Um, but I will play around with things from time to time and, and see whether they work for me. Yeah, yeah. See, I um, I take creatine, magnesium, sulforaphane. That's it. Oh, branch chain amino acids, protein. Those are the things which I've managed to successfully work into my routine so I don't even really think about it. They're just kind of part and parcel of what I do. Yeah. Um, and I feel like someone like Tracy, who, you know, the final part of her question is, do I need to prioritize different things on different days? From a uh, an athlete perspective, if I'm looking at that, I know that I benefit from taking creatine just daily it's not a thing that you would or wouldn't take to help support recovery from exercise actually I find it um, not just recovery from exercise but just kind of maintenance of musculoskeletal system you know as we age we know that it's got really important benefits there 
Um, and probably also for Tracy, I would definitely look at like a protein if she doesn't already have a protein powder. And you mentioned that in your initial answer to her question as well. But that wouldn't be specific to any certain day. It would just be probably most days, actually, because people yeah. really do struggle to meet the requirements. And, and athletes in particular might have or, or seem to have higher protein requirements than others. Um, and then, you know, if Tracy gets particularly sore after doing something like martial arts or is struggling to recover after running, then maybe looking at those recovery-based supplements could be quite helpful for her. Um, and often I mention things like omega-3s to reduce inflammation, uh, taking collagen, as you described or mentioned, Cliff, and also potentially turmeric. I know people can really benefit from that. And I think... Yeah. You're right, there's a bunch of supplements which absolutely have a really robust evidence base um, kind of behind them. And then there are other things which some people just really benefit from them, but you're not going to find uh, 15 different uh, robust meta-analyses that confirm that they're going to be beneficial, you know. So there is something to be said for individual variation there. Yeah, and also I think one thing that comes into that is behavioural patterning right mm. uh, what I mean by that is there's a big debate I'll give you an example there's a big debate around whether a post-workout protein drink is is actually that effective mm. on balance it's probably not there's a lot of data to support it but there's also you know subsequent data which shows that well if you're just getting enough protein and overall not really much if any effect but my question is often with clients well are you getting in enough protein overall mm. and the reality is well no not consistently and so having a post-workout protein drink is often what they can do very easily because it becomes a, it's a behavioral trigger. Yeah. You know, I know that after every training session, I go into the kitchen, I make up a protein shake and I drink it. Yeah. It, if I wasn't doing that, I wouldn't probably remember to have that protein shake at another time. And I know that I'm going to slip into a habit of not eating as much protein as is, is optimal for me. Yeah. And so it's not always just about looking at the, I guess the the first line conclusion of the research either. It's about looking a little bit deeper into well, how does that actually translate to functional outcomes? Nice. Like, is it, is it meaningful? Um, is there data to suggest that there's a way to do something that is going to really help me to apply this to my life? And if so, how do I do that? Mm, no, that's such a good reminder. And you know, I'm thinking about the client. A lot of clients that I work with as endurance athletes who may train in the morning you know, they may get in their caloric requirements and their nutrients in the day, but they actually do run the risk of showing symptoms of energy availability issues because they backload their nutrition practices rather than forefront it. So, mm. you know, they because it's super easy to jump up, do a session, shower, go to work, get called into a meeting, and then before you know it, it's 11 o'clock and you haven't actually had anything. And then you're playing catch up and that doesn't leave you in a very good space and uh, in terms of recovery and, and things like that despite the fact that you're right on balance it's kind of overall protein load and overall overall kind of nutrient load that's important so I agree with you with that that whole behavioral thing getting into the habits and routine around things that people need to be taking um, is all part and parcel of of the picture yeah I quite like um, not not to sort of not not talking about what you would talking about exactly but I quite yeah. like the idea for some people of of backloading mm -hmm. but it's also trepidous because if people aren't getting in enough whether it be energy load whether it be protein earlier it's harder to 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 eat well later yeah yeah, right? yeah. It's, you're far Absolutely. more likely to to make bigger compromises you're far more likely to eat more convenient food you're far more likely to go for sugary stuff maybe load up on that because you're, you're really trying then to make up for that calorie insufficiency yeah um so while it can be effective and some people can do it really well it's also people have also got to consider that well maybe it's not going to work that well for me you know i, yeah. I know for a fact that when i have a big protein shake after training in the morning i eat better at night yeah yeah interesting when i miss it i'm far more likely to go that that little bit more overboard at night yeah. Do you know, I've looked at some research in and around the satiety, the, uh, the satiety effects of whey protein, and I'm sure that you've seen this as well, is that men tend to get a better uh, satiety effect from taking a protein shake uh, compared to women. Hmm. Yeah. Interesting, eh? Very interesting. Yeah. 
I um, find my protein uh, so much more satisfying when I blitz it with ice, egg whites, and a little bit of almond milk, put a tiny bit of xanthan gum in there, and then maybe some peppermint uh, flav- cookie-flavoured stevia, and then make it into an ice cream. Protein ice cream. Nice. <laughs> it's great, actually, um, particularly this time of year. Not that I I'm going to go great. into how hot it is, but um, um, it's a really nice refresher after dinner. I'm quite happy drinking my calories. I don't like ice cream at all. <laughs> In fact, I don't really like things that are too cold. I'm quite happy to drink a warm protein shake. Are you? Yeah. Oh, I'm not sure how I feel about that, Cliff. Maybe it'll be different. Maybe it's because right now the idea of a hot drink makes me feel just completely overheated. Um, I wouldn't do it by choice. What I mean is if I accidentally, you know, the water's <laughs> a bit too warm or whatever, it doesn't bother me. It's fine. Oh, tepid. Not sure. Um, cool, Cliff. Well, I feel like we've gone into a lot of what hopefully we've helped Tracy just kind of, um, I suppose, prioritize her requirements or her needs. One last thing I will say is, and I know that you and I have spoken about this before, um, whether or not it was on a podcast, um, I can't remember, but sometimes it does matter how much you spend, you know, like sometimes it is worth getting a good quality supplement and they are going to be more expensive but not always either. So there are certain brands which we know are pretty reliable. And of course, I'd be remiss if I didn't mention New Zest and Clean Lean Protein and also the good green stuff, which is like, you know, very good kind of multivite across the board. And I often recommend, you know, as a broad spectrum thing for people to add in, that's actually just super easy and pretty delicious. Other supplement companies, which I'll mention, and then if you just give me a couple of your favourites, um, Cliff, I like Life Extension, I like Thorn, which is spelt with an E on the end, I like Now, N-O-W, and they are also regulated to a point where I think WADA, which is the World Anti-Doping Agency, they have, a, um, they have an eye over Now products and give them their tick of approval. So for any athletes who are looking at different supplements, Jaro is another one as well. I mean, there are plenty more, but these are some off the top of my head and also some really good local ones as well that you'll find within Neutralife, Good Health, Go Healthy. You're going to find um, some decent supplements there. Yeah. Um, I I like pure encapsulations as well. They're a really Mm. good, sort of very similar to Thorn. Um, but they're probably a little bit more, they've sort of stayed very firmly in the practitioner space, whereas Thorn's branching out a little bit more now. Yeah. Um, for, for fish oil, I think Nordic Naturals, you know, they're, yes. they're the old gold standard, but I think the, the Melrose stuff is, is really up there with that now. So that, that's really good product. And um, obviously I'm a big fan of the, the Melrose MCTs. I think they're a very good product as well. Yeah. Um, you know, mushroom wise, there's a lot of shit out there, but there's some some good brands. And obviously, you know, I disclose my conflict of interest. I, I bring in the life cycle and four sigmatic stuff, mm. um, but they're very reputable companies. Having said that, uh, unfortunately, life cycle has been very hard hit by the logistics problems that have arisen from COVID. So that's a bit of a challenge. Yeah. Um, and that's actually a bit of a, I, I, I don't want to get into this, but that's an interesting aspect because the, the higher quality ingredients have been, more prone to impact from all the things that are going on in the world yeah because often they're they're more local um there's more effect if an area goes into lockdown or whatever so it really hits the supply chain whereas when you've got um, companies that can just get raw material from more or less anywhere and they're happy to buy say cheap russian or cheap chinese product yeah um then they're not so affected by it yeah interesting and that's not a xenophobic thing. I mean, there, there is, you know, there are certain things that, especially with supplements, there are a lot of things that come out of China and people don't realize, but yeah. a lot of supplements come out of China and a lot of them are really good. But yeah. there, there are also products that are, are probably not that great because the standards are not that high and some of the substrate that's used is not fantastic. Some of the soil quality is pretty poor, um, you know, all sorts of things from water quality through to soil quality, substrate quality, all sorts, uh, means that you've, you've got to be a little bit wary. Yeah, we've mentioned a few brands here, Cliff. Is there any way that people can go to, you know, if they want to check off their own supplement brand or the ones that they've got in their cupboards? Like, I cannot think of a place off the top of my head. I'm sure if you mention somewhere, I'll go, oh, yeah, that place. But right now, not yeah. coming to me. 
Not, not now, not that I know of. There used to be some authors who used to put out little guides on reputable products and reputable, reputable companies. Now, some of that was probably a little bit disingenuous too, because subsequently we realized they have vested interests in companies. But um, no, I, I don't really know of anywhere people can go yeah. um, to check that out. In terms of looking at supplements overall and what's effective, of course, examine.com is the place to go. Um, but they don't talk about brand names because they specifically want to separate themselves from any commercial bias. Yeah, yeah. But in, in general terms of, hey, this thing has come out, how efficacious is it? How useful is it? Should I add it? Then absolutely examine.com has they've built a really solid kind of database on supplements and things like yeah. that. Yeah, exactly. Awesome, Doc. Right. So if I move on, because we were talking about uh, mushrooms, I feel like this would be a really good place to pick up. And we have got Nikita Fincham. She asks, hey, Mickey, could you chat, chat to Cliff about mushrooms, fruiting body versus whole powder versus liquid extract ratios, et cetera, et cetera. And to be fair, you are, in addition to being New Zealand's keto expert, um, I know that you've written, I'm going to say a number of articles, or I've just seen an article a number of times, um, all about the benefits of mushroom. And you and I have spoken at length about this. We both know people who really benefit, and you've mentioned before that you really benefit from mushrooms yourself. Do you want to just demystify this area a little bit for us, Cliff? Yeah, so unashamedly, it is an, an emerging area. But I think there is more research than a, a lot of sort of skeptics will allow for. There, there's actually quite a lot. I mean, the, the evidence basis for mushrooms is fairly robust. And so we do know that there are a lot of health and other benefits from, from mushrooms. I mean, if we're just looking at them as a food, it's pretty clear, you know, from the evidence that they're very health healthful food. I've got to say, yeah. I love mushrooms. I love button mushrooms. And I don't know how many, how much health benefits button mushrooms have and where these lie in terms of your thing, but there's nothing better. I could eat raw mushrooms probably all day long. I don't know what it is about them. I love them. Surprisingly good benefits from even just your normal sort of button mushrooms, portobellos, things like that. They're, you know, very high in... Not, not so much the antioxidants per se, but very effective for improving our, our natural antioxidant pathways and reducing mm. inflammation, things like that. Basically, all the mushrooms are beginning to show promise, including your, your very basic mushrooms for improving glucose homeostasis and um, you know all sorts of things. There was a really interesting study done on mushrooms where they replaced beef with the same volume of mushrooms. Ah. Now, I wouldn't suggest replacing beef with mushrooms, but this is a, yeah. a really interesting study because it, it um, showed that when people replace beef with the same volume of mushrooms, they didn't then eat any extra. So they're incredibly satiating. Yes. That's kind of cool because I, I wouldn't get rid of the beef, but I'd say, we'll have your beef with some mushrooms. It's going to be yeah. even more satiating. Yeah. And that there are, you know, an incredibly nutrient dense, quite bulky type food that provides a lot of of comfort in terms of those natural sort of mechanistic aspects of satiety and, and feeling full and well. So that's pretty cool because that could help with, you know, weight control and all sorts. But outside of that, I mean, there, there are a lot of more esoteric mushrooms that have actually been used traditionally for a long time. They've been used across all cultures. We just kind of in the West maybe lost contact with a few of them. Mm. And I think a lot of that was because of the fear around eating a poisonous mushroom, which is, you know, founded. There's a lot of poisonous mushrooms out there. Um, some are not so poisonous as we, as we once thought, um, or they've sort of become known as being more poisonous than they actually are. Some are incredibly lethal and you eat one and you're dead. So that, that sort of fear drove a lot of resistance to eating mushrooms. And we also commoditized mushrooms so much that it pretty much just became standard field mushrooms is what everyone ate. Yeah. With respect to quality, one of the key things is to ensure that the, that the product you're getting has been grown on good substrate because mushrooms are very good aggregators of chemical pollutants and heavy metals. And so if they're growing with poor quality water or poor quality substrate, they'll basically aggregate that and you'll end up eating it. And obviously that's not, not very good. So you want to make sure the, the quality of supply is, is good. Um, I'm becoming more and more of a fan of sort of not having homogenization of mushrooms either. So what I mean by that is not starting to grow commercially in New Zealand, a whole bunch of North American 
lion's mane, mm. Herosia merinaceus, because we have our own native lion's manes. So why don't we use those, you know, cultivate those um, sustainably while collect them or, you know, preferably cultivate them, all that kind of stuff. And then when we come through to mycelium versus fruiting body, it, there's a lot of debate around that. A lot of people will say, well, just use the fruiting body and mycelium is just cheap byproduct that companies put in their product to bulk it out, basically. Now, I'm sorry, just to stop you there, fruiting body being the entire mushroom, like what's the difference between the mycelium and, sorry to be an ignoramus? Good question. So, um, you know, when you're rooting through some pine bark mulch or something here from the garden yeah. center and there's all that white mycorrhizae in it. Oh yeah. That's, yeah. That, that's the sort of beginning stages of mycelium and that will grow and it will begin to grow through all of that substrate. It causes these sort of white filament like almost roots yeah. to go through it all. And the fruiting bodies grow out of that. So if you looked underneath, uh, like in a field mushroom, for example, if you actually dug underneath it, you'd see that mycelium in the soil. So the, the mycelium is interesting because the mycelium is way bigger than the fruiting bodies. And we think about the mushroom as being the thing we see. Yeah. But that is literally like a fruit. And if we pick that mushroom, we don't, unless we trample the mycelium and damage it, we don't actually do any damage to the organism. It's mm. just like taking an apple off a tree. Yeah, yeah. Now, a lot of the active compounds that we talk about are um, consolidated within the fruiting body. So that's why a lot of people say we use the fruiting bodies and not the mycelium. But there are literally thousands of chemicals coded by tens of thousands of genes within fungi. And mm. a lot of those are within the mycelium. So I think a, a blend of both is completely fine. I wouldn't necessarily go for an all, all mycelium product because that probably means it is relatively cheap. They're basically mm. fast creating it and not letting the fruiting bodies come out and then just chopping off substrate, drawing the mycelium out and selling that. Um, but a mixture of mycelium and fruiting body is, is no problem in my humble opinion. Um, as far as powders versus extracts, again, we don't actually know what's superior because the studies haven't been done, but we can see that a, a lot of the active compounds that we can identify are actually transmitted through two extracted products. Mm. And they're slightly different, but there's still a similar content overall, whether you're looking at alcohol or water extractions or different types of extractions. So there's probably going to be slightly different compounds within, say, powder or different extracts. And that's just the nature of the beast. But they're probably all going to have benefit. So what it really comes down to is how you want to take it. You know, if you mm. want to put powder in your smoothie or add powder to stews and things because it adds an umami flavor, mm. great. Um, if you want just the ease of taking an extract, because it's super simple, you can just squirt it into your mouth or you know squeeze it into any drink, and it's you know more or less flavor flavorless. Um, then that's what would determine what you're getting, not so much you know the, the superiority of one over the other. Mm. Okay, so there is a product like a vegetarian protein called mycoprotein, I think, <clears throat> or mysoprotein, or and and it's known for the fact that it is made from mushroom as opposed to you know pea protein or soy or or anything like that. So that mycoprotein is that going to bring with it? Do you think those same health benefits as mushroom or? So people having that vegetarian, and I think it might be the corn products, you know, the Q-U-O-R-N, if you've seen them at the supermarket. Yeah, um, back in the, people used to eat those back in the 70s, right? <laughs> yeah, and they've made their way to New Zealand shores, actually just in time for Helen Kilding to turn and in, back into a meat eater from a vegetarian. She was slightly devastated, actually. She'd been waiting years for them to show up here, and then finally they do, and she's like, well, now I'm eating actual mints. I don't need vegetarian mints anymore. I'm not 100% sure. I, I think this is very limited. I, yeah, I don't yeah. know a lot about this. Um, but my understanding is that those microproteins are sort of they're, they're that growing and they're a, a particular type of uh, fungus, almost like a, a yeast. Okay. Now, if, if anyone knows more about this, then please reply to this when it goes out and tell yeah, me I'm yeah. wrong. But this is yeah. my understanding is it's sort of like a, a yeast type thing and then protein is extracted from that. So it's not really um, looking Mushroom. at mushrooms per se that we might find in the wild that have a whole bunch of other benefits. Now there might be benefits from it, but I'm not aware mm. of them. And I, I don't believe it would be the same as sort of the broad health benefits you'd get from taking, say, turkey tail or lion's mane or whatever. Yeah, um, yeah. 
but you know it could be a very good source of protein i'm just not sure okay thanks cliff and it's you a know, cool you mentioned... idea too because you know that growing proteins is is a, a pretty cool idea for ecological sustainability <laughs> Completely, totally. Um, it's kind of in the same realm of cricket protein, but potentially a little bit more palatable than cricket protein per se. Crickets are just an it. awesome food. Oh, I, I've, I've eaten crickets, locusts, all sorts. I, I'll eat anything. Yeah, yeah no, See, I, 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 eat I, eat, I eat everything as well. Like, literally, I will eat anything. But <laughs> when it comes to cricket protein bars, like maybe that's my problem. I haven't actually had crickets per se. I've had crickets munched up in addition to a whole bunch of other things and then sold to me as a paleo protein bar um, meant to, you know, help improve sustainability. Crickets of, are a great snack. Mm, I'm you sure. You know, like um, barbecued. Oh yeah, you know, barbecued crickets and yeah, they're, Salt. They're, they're pretty good. Yeah, come they're just like a chip. Yeah, yeah, um, I can imagine they would be. So I, I think they're really good food. I, I don't and I think they're a good protein as well, but they're not, in terms of protein quality, it's not as good as people say. And that's, mm. there's, there's been a study comes out, it came out that showed that I think the efficacy of the protein was about two thirds of what it had previously been thought to be. Yeah. So you just, that's not to say it's bad. You probably just need to have a little bit more than you would have say, you know, whey or pea protein, which are fairly equivalent in terms of their um, absorption and usability. Yeah, I heard that as well, um, which was interesting and a, a podcast Stu Phillips was doing in and around just you know where to in terms of protein sources you know meat versus vegetarian and I think what, what would Stu Phillips though no <laughs> I know right uh, um I love that know, when you've got a protein thread going on Twitter you just call in the big guns and tag in Stu Phillips it's kind of like okay <laughs> yeah. okay, okay Mickey <laughs> yeah <laughs> It's my mate Stu. Yeah, you're right. <laughs> He'll let, let, let him weigh in. And he's, you know, the best thing about, like, I really love it how the people that you kind of look up to in the academic space, they really engage with people like us, you know, like you get, because you do get some people who they completely ignore you, but Stu's brilliant. Like he'll always come in and kind of offer his two cents worth, you know, he's never, it never appears that he's too busy to give you his opinion. And let's face it, him along with Luke Van Loon and Kevin Tipton and, and these guys, they're kind of the the gurus in that protein space. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. yeah. Um. So Cliff, if I go back, you mentioned turkey tail, you mentioned reishi, you mentioned lion's mane. Um, I see these advertised for the different, you know, the particular different health benefits. So does this mean if I'm interested in focus and attention, I might head to lion's mane? If I'm interested in reducing anxiety, I'm going to give reishi, you know, a go? Like, is that is that how it works? Yeah, it does. They, I mean, they cross over a lot um, and they, they do have a lot of similarities and a lot of, you know, shared benefits, but we they, they also do have their specificities i guess there's mm. particular things that um you know they're particularly known for and they've been studied for and so yeah you can kind of simplify it by saying well they're, they're all pretty good for a whole range of health benefits you know they potentially have all have potential anti-cancer actions and they're all potentially mm. and that's not saying they're cures for cancer it's just that they no. might help to reduce some of those processes um that they all help to improve natural oxidation pathways they uh, in, in antioxidant pathways i should say they help to reduce inflammation like and stuff but lion's mane typically pretty good for the brain improving focus cognition um encouraging neurogenesis and neural repair um things like reishi uh very good all-rounder chaga is known mostly for its immune benefits um and that's more of a specific mushroom that you take for a short period of time not not chronically okay um Turkey tail is well known for um, its, its use as an adjunct cancer treatment in Japan, um, mm. but it also has potential benefits for the gut and for a range of other things. Yeah, shiitake, again, another good good all-rounder. Reishi, you know, like I said, is a great all-rounder, all -rounder, but also is used a lot by people for relaxant benefits. Okay. And are these, so we've mentioned Life Cycle and Four Sigmatic, and they're two brands which I'm well familiar with and have purchased in the past. Are there any local varieties, Cliff? Can we, and can we just buy these mushrooms as mushrooms, or are they really only available in their extract form? Are they that kind of specialized? Um, you can. <clears throat> so, in terms of supplements, there's nothing that I know of that uses New Zealand substrate, oh, sorry, New Zealand product, but we have potentially looking into that there's a few mm. things afoot where we're hoping to to look into that and we want to obviously 
I'm talking we as in the broader sort of, I guess, mushroom community in New Zealand. Yeah. want to make sure that that's done well and incorporates iwi and you know, people with traditional knowledge and things like that as well. Um, but that's a work in progress. At the moment, the closest we have is Lifecycle, who use Australian product because they're based in Australia. So mm-hmm. they actually use the, the native varieties. Um, for example, the lion's mane they use is Cerisium australis, which is the Australian lion's mane. Uh, but you can buy the mushrooms and some of it's imported. Um, others you, you ca- are beginning to be able to now get native species as well. So particularly mm. native oyster mushrooms, mm-hmm. which are also pretty plentiful. I, I pick them quite commonly and, and eat them just from our local parks. Yeah. So they're, they're pretty plentiful. Um, other plentiful mushrooms that you can find around fairly commonly are things like wood ears. Um, there's a lot of turkey tail out there, mm. um, but you can buy those from uh, House of Fungi as well. Mm. or house, house of fungi if people want to pronounce it like that but house of fungi is a new zealand company and they sell um native lion's mane and native oyster mushrooms okay i'm a little bit disappointing you're saying house of fungi because all of those awesome jokes about fungi you know if that's how we we're <laughs> going to pronounce it now kind of off the table um well, one know, of my best mates is a um fungi microbiologist mycologist and he um he says fungi so I, I follow his lead i think paul Stamen says fungi as well so yeah no like if the gurus say it then I, i'm not going to argue with them <laughs> um i do it's interesting with that kind of picking uh, mushrooms kind of wild mushrooms and stuff my dad has always done that and every time he tells me he's out to he's going to go out and see what he can find on the mushroom front I think well this is the time this is it because you know I'm always a bit fearful that he's going to you know find that one poisonous mushroom that's going to be the end of him uh, so far marginata. not yeah <laughs> yeah so uh any tips on that Cliff like how do people know what's a how do people know what's poisonous and what's not other than you know I've seen some most brilliantly colored beautiful mushrooms which I believe are deadly poisonous and so I would not pick them is that oh, how probably you? not yeah. Um, it's the little brown mushrooms that are generally the ones that are most dangerous. Not always, but they're, okay. they're generally the ones, which is why you get a bit of, um, when people go out collecting psychedelic mushrooms, there's a bit of confusion out there. And that's where we had some, some poisonings last year. Yes. Was people picking things like gallerina, which can be, you know, lethal yeah. um, in relatively small doses. So there, there, are, there are challenges out there. Um, but basically what people want to do is, you want to obviously start educating yourself. I think that there are some really good groups for mushroom collectors and foragers on mm. Facebook, for example. Mm-hmm. And quite often, if you post the mushroom, uh, making sure you cover off all the aspects of the mushroom so people can identify it, they'll generally have pretty good ID there. Um, so I'd suggest doing doing that. Um, but That's I think always triangulating it too, getting lots of different opinions. So maybe posting to a group, getting yourself a little guidebook, um, and then also using uh, Google Lens and mm. Google Photos. So if you go to Google Photos and click on your photo, there's a little icon there to click on Lens, and that basically will bring up any matching Google images for it. Oh. And so you can tend to start getting an idea. Um, but if people are going to be foraging, they really want to familiarize themselves with the characteristics of mushrooms, like what a you know, what are the characteristics of the stipe, which is the, the mushroom stem? Uh, what do the gills look like? You know, what does the, um, the mushroom cap look like? Because they all have very distinct characteristics. So you need to really mm. drill down into that because some of the mushrooms that are edible do look very much like um, poisonous mushrooms. Who knew? This is just, I feel like this is whole world of intrigue and excitement in that mushroom space, and I've never really done a deep dive. Equally, it's really never fun felt... to go out looking for them, even if, if you not go out and identify them. And you start to see some of the mushrooms that we find when we go out foraging. We don't necessarily pick them because they may yeah. not be edible or may not even be wanting to pick them, but they're they're amazing things. Yeah, yeah, they really so are. It's um, I remember seeing some like we were on a run last year up to uh Parongia hut actually and our mate greg took a picture of a mushroom that was blue with yellow dots on it and it did look absolutely amazing you know like it's amazing what nature can produce you know oh yeah and there's um phosphorescent mushrooms so there are sort of gymnopolis species and these other types of species that are fairly prevalent in New Zealand in the in the bush. Yeah. Um, yeah. And they'll, they'll glow in the dark. Amazing. Yeah, pretty Ooh. cool. Oh yeah. 
Well, Cliff, um, thank you for that. What I will do <laughs> is I will link to um, the beef and mushroom study that you described because I find that very interesting. Um, beef and mushroom pie is what immediately springs to mind, delish. Um, yeah. The House of Fungi website, but also your you've got an article all in and around mushrooms, don't you? Like a review article. Was that behind a paywall? Is that something that people are able to access easily? Actually, people need to just become a patron of Cliff Harvey, right? And then they'll have access to all of your musings and evidence-based articles. They do, yeah. I, I'm not on Patreon anymore, but I've switched it all to my just my website at cliffharvey.com. Cool. So people can just go there and they, um, you can read some free articles every month. Mm. And then um, I think if you want to read more than three a month, then you need to sign up. Mm. Um, so if people want to be cheapskates, they can probably still find what they need. If they want to really go, <laughs> go deep on it, then um, it's a pretty, you know, pretty low cost subscription there. And that basically just helps um, pay for my coffee. Yeah, it does. Uh, outside of that, I do have some articles there. There's also a, um, a little ebook that people can download at nutritionstore.online as well. Nice. Um, just a little ebook on supplemental mushrooms, and that goes through just the, the basic ones. So it goes through turkey tail, lion's mane, uh, reishi, shiitake, and chaga. That's awesome. And, uh, and cordyceps um, as well. Oh, of course, we didn't really touch on cordyceps, but that's another well-known one. Well, I'll include links to, obviously, Nutrition Store Online and cliffharvey.com, um, and also that like straight to that supplemental um, ebook. And you're right, you know, it's very small cost to become a, a member of Cliff Harvey's um, little in-group and actually get your information too. And um, And I always really appreciate the stuff that you put out. So even though I don't pay you for it, because to be fair, I just like send you a text, Cliff. Tell me about this, and you're very, you're very forthcoming with uh, with information. And now, Cliff, there was finally something I was going to ask you. Oh, so you mentioned coffee. Are you back on coffee? I'm drinking decaf. Yeah, just one cap, cup a day. Mm. And if I go out with a buddy like yourself, yeah. I might yeah. have a, a coffee. But I think that I've sort of found my um, my best fit sort of level now yeah 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 cool because previously we talked and you had been off for I think for about three weeks and noticed a difference so yeah, def it... definitely noticed a difference I, I, I mean I really like coffee and I think mm. you know for for a lot of people it's completely fine completely healthy but for me it was getting to the point where I was overdoing it and um, really driving you know some extra anxiety that I didn't need and that was sort of translating yeah. as well into increased pain and uh, arthritis and things like that so having nipped that in the bud and then finding a, a different level uh, that sort of put paid to all that and I'm feeling a lot better now. Nice and often I find that the complete removal of something to then you know to almost break that habit or create that habit change like going back to that behavioral stuff that we were talking about earlier is often easier than just dropping back I mean one you had the added benefit of experiencing coffee free what does that feel like and noticing the improvement to then be able to go okay so if I bring back this level what am I going to notice is it good is it not yeah. unsurprisingly you've done it in a very smart way in the way that I would recommend well abstention I think is a valuable tool and People, there's often this idea, especially amongst people who are ostensibly evidence-based, that it should just be all about moderation. Mm. You know, why would you go keto? Just have the potato kind of thing. It's like, mm. you know, there's no difference in long-term studies, blah, 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 that kind of stuff. But that doesn't take into account the behavioral aspects of life. Mm. And one thing that I think is really valuable about abstention from anything, you know, it could be that you're... A, you know your carnivore diet and you decide for a couple of weeks i'm not going to eat meat i'm going to go vegan mm. like that shouldn't cause brain explosions for people <laughs> that, that's a good opportunity to recognize more about yourself to learn a bit more and maybe to recognize some of your vices or, or patterns around various things you do so you know dropping out something like coffee for a while that can help you to realize the the pattern that you've created and you can then ask yourself a lot more objectively well does this serve me and does it serve me in the way that I thought it did and maybe it didn't now that doesn't mean that you need to abstain from it for the rest of your life because there might be a healthy balance that you can come back to 
and this is contentious, but I, I did actually read some interesting stuff years and years ago about some previous alcoholics that had come back to moderate drinking and were able to do it. Mm. Now that's uncommon. And I wouldn't suggest that that's a safe approach for a lot of people because yeah. in you know extreme cases of addiction, it's better just to get rid of it. Again, another tick in the box for abstention. But it also shows that there is some degree of fluidity there and there is a spectrum upon which we, we will rest in terms of all of our lifestyle habits and behaviors. And we just need to basically find what, what works for us and also reevaluate that from time to time because things change. Yeah, yeah. You know? and, that, and we've talked about this before and it's, a, it's an interesting thing to me is that because we're so obsessed with finding the, the right thing for us to do, we get patterned into this idea that we're finding perfection. Once I find the right diet for me, that's going to be it. Yeah. But it won't be because life changes and you change, yeah. you know, things change around you. So instead, I think we need to bring back into life the, the idea of play. I'm doing what I do and I create habits because that helps me to function. But I'm still going to be prepared to play around and experiment with things. And it's like I was saying with the supplements, set your base. But then around that, sure, experiment with some things. You know, try some mushrooms, try this, try that. Doesn't work for you, don't use it. It's cool. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And it's just a matter of um, having that openness to experimentation, which I think is that, and that's a scientific method. Right? We're open to experimentation on a, on a self level. And I think a lot of ostensible scientists who don't do that because they're too scared of step, stepping outside of the, the norm. Yeah. They're not being scientific. Yeah. Yeah. I appreciate what you're saying. And that whole abstention versus moderation um, kind of line of argument for want of a better word. It's a really interesting one, right? And I have a conversation with um, Sarah Lake on Friday, who is a practitioner in intuitive eating. And, okay. you know, and there's that whole realm of, it's not about, you know, I, I really am really looking forward to kind of diving into the concepts of intuitive eating for her because I don't understand them in a, on a way that makes me feel confident that it's, you know, something I'd recommend someone do. Whereas, of course, Sarah is really well trained in it. So yeah. you hear things on intuitive eating and I'm like, how can you possibly intuitively eat with the environment that's set up around us and you know moderation is really difficult and things like that but I think that might speak more to my misunderstanding of the practice rather than that there are some flaws in the practice so I'll be interested to kind of chat to her about that and the um, you know abstaining versus moderating that'll be a really interesting chat yeah well Cliff um, we've done it again we've got through a couple of questions and you've been amazing in terms of the level of detail and kind of practical advice as always that people that you've provided so hopefully you're okay with the fact that I'm probably going to ping you in about a month's time and and ask you to come on because people have been loving your episodes unsurprisingly as I do um, now we've already mentioned cliffharvey.com obviously as well people can take your courses and you know want to find out a little bit more and how to better upskill themselves in terms of nutrition um, holistic performance institute is always the place that I send people and I've had a number of queries actually this year from people who are wanting to get a better understanding of nutrition you're on and Facebook it's all fully accredited now as well which is great you know it's amazing association clinical nutrition association so people can come out and actually be registered as a practitioner which is you know really cool and it's it's the first time really that a, a non-university or PTE um, has achieved those sorts of accreditations. So we're, we're pretty stoked. Oh, look, it's amazing. And you've got such world-class people like Eric Helms and... Um, and yourself, Mickey. And, oh, yeah. Dr. Eric Helms, <laughs> and me, Dr. Mickey yeah. Wilder, Dr. Yeah. Frida Medella. Yeah, it's amazing. People get, yeah, they're going to learn from the gurus, really. Um, so, Cliff, uh, thank you very much for your time. Enjoy the rest of your day. You too, mate. I will, I'm going to move myself to a room that has a little bit more airflow because I'm about to die. It's so hot, but uh, yeah. Likewise. <laughs> Catch you later. Thanks, mate. So, team, Cliff, of course dropped a number of different truth bombs in there which you would always expect and which is one of the reasons why I love chatting to him so as I said Cliff very easy to get hold of if you just go to cliffharvey.com Cliff Harvey on Facebook and also you'll see him over at the Holistic Performance Institute 
as well. So um, he's very easy to connect with. That's us for this week. And uh, as I said, you'll find the links to what we discussed in the show notes, including a link to sign up for the Female Nutrition Holistic Performance Institute course. And next week on the podcast, I am delighted to bring to you my conversation with Jamie Scott, a good mate of mine, co-founder of the Ancestral Health Society of New Zealand. And we talk all about seasonality and health, which is a conversation that you do not want to miss because Jamie is one of the smartest guys I know. And I'm really lucky to call him a mate. So um, that's next Wednesday. And until then, you can get hold of me on Facebook at Mickey Willardin Nutrition, over on Instagram and Twitter at Mickey Willardin, and of course on my website, mickeywillardin.com, where you can sign up to a number of my different nutrition plans for athletes, longevity, fat loss, specifically for men and women, or if you just need some fresh ideas on how to put together a good diet for you and your family, I've got that too. And in addition to the meal plans, you get a weekly email from me, which is my thoughts or the research that I'm currently diving into, shopping lists to go along with your meal plans, a weekly forum on Facebook where I answer your Q&A in that group setting, or actually just direct access to pick my brain through the in-app messaging system. So I hope to see you there. Until then team, you have a fab week and catch you soon. See ya.